Good morning. If you have a Bible, open it up to Philippians chapter 4. We're going to be in verses 4 through 9 of Philippians 4 this morning. And uh, I want to mention just a couple of things to you. First of all, if you are here this summer, if you're planning to be here this summer, we do have a college class over the summer just at 11 o'clock in this room as well as over at Southwood, and we'll have small groups also. But wanted to make you aware of an opportunity to help out with our Backyard Bible Clubs. Uh, we are doing, it's uh, like a VBS, but it'll meet in homes around the area for kids in the community here in College Station. We'll do skits, games, give them snacks, all that kind of stuff, and present the gospel. It's June 11th through 14th. So if you're in town, we would love to have you participate in that. You can participate as a gospel presenter or on a skit team or as a storyteller or a game crew, whatever you feel like fits your gifts and your desires to help out these kids. We would love to have you participate. You can sign up for that on our website. Yeah, grace-bible.org. You can go sign up. The reason I'm telling y'all today is next Sunday, there's a training meeting, April 22nd. So if it's something you think you're interested in, we'd encourage you to go to that training meeting on April 22nd. And uh, what we'll try to do is give you more specific details about that next week. One other quick note on the slide for the Aggie baseball game that we're going to this week. It's Tuesday, right? The, the game is Tuesday. Okay, A&M versus Rice. You may have noticed on the background of the slide, there was a baseball. Uh, that baseball said T-ball on it. Uh, we're not going to a T-ball game. A&M is an NCAA team, so they will not be playing T-ball. Um, and let me just give you a little bit of background here. Our, uh, Jamie makes our slides for us, and we love him, and he does a great job. Does a great job up here with worship, but he's not a sports guy. And so uh, he may have seen that background, and it didn't occur to him that T-ball, you know, you set it on a little T. So uh, the college guys will not be doing that. Uh, We will be going out there. We'll be sitting on the grass. Uh, We all have our strength. Sports is not Jamie's. Uh, Let me just tell you, though, I... I want to. I want to. Though I want to follow that up by saying this: We do all have our strengths, and in all seriousness, um, I was really moved by the worship this morning. It was a great opportunity uh, to sing praises to God, and I hope you guys, on a week-to-week basis, feel uh, that the Lord is moving as Jamie leads. Uh, I've worked with Jamie for about eight or ten years, and really even since I was in college, off and on. And one of the things I've always appreciated as he leads is he brings to us not only musical ability, but a deep sense of theological understanding. And so he thinks a lot about the songs that he chooses so that we sing those things that are truthful to the word of God as well as uplifting to the Lord. So anyway, I just wanted to take a moment to appreciate him as long as I'm going to razz him about the slide too. So I know he, yeah. All right, we'll we'll keep going. Philippians 4, 4 through 9. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your gentle spirit be known to all men. The Lord is near. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brethren, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, Whatever is of good repute, if there is any excellence and if anything worthy of praise, dwell on these things. The things you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. Would you guys pray with me? Father, we thank you for the opportunity to be here this morning 
to sing your praises. I do thank you for each of the musicians who led us before your throne so we can know you and we can worship you. Father, we confess that that's the purpose and the meaning of our lives is to know you through your son, Jesus Christ, and to worship you and to bring you praise with what we say and with what we do and with what we think. And we ask that you would empower us through your spirit to do just that. Father, as we study your word, we pray that you would help us to understand what it has to say. Make it clear to us as we read the words that Paul wrote to a church many, many years ago in a very different situation, and yet a church that faced many of the same challenges and issues we face today. I pray help us understand. I pray move in our hearts uh, that we would believe. I pray remove any doubts or fears from our minds and hearts and then empower us to obey you. I pray we'd walk out of here changed somewhat more like Jesus Christ than we were when we came in, that these wouldn't just be words on a page that we hear that go into our minds and out of our ears, Father, but I pray instead we would listen and obey. We thank you, God, and we pray all of this in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. Well, uh, how many of you guys, when you took driver's ed, had to do a simulator, like a car simulator, before they let you in the car? Okay, just, okay, like two of us, okay. Let me explain to you, you guys are like, what are you talking about? Okay, when I was in high school, when I took driver's ed, before they would let us actually get on the road and drive the cars, we had to go into a little trailer And we would sit down at a desk and there were little steering wheels on the desk and little pretend pedals and like a little pretend gear shift. And we would watch a screen and someone had driven along the road and and they filmed it and you had to do the same thing, right? You had to drive as if you were driving. It was really about the dumbest idea in the world, right? Because sitting at a desk is nothing like being on an actual road, right? But we would do this and it would send little signals to the instructor to let him know if we uh, hit our brake at the right time, if we hit the gas at the right time, did we come to a complete stop at the stop sign, all these sort of things. And I guess the idea was before they let you go out there and do the real thing, they wanted you to do it for pretend, just to get a feel for it. But the deal was that the scenarios on the screen were like the craziest things that would ever happen to you on the road, right? So you're driving along and they had rigged this thing. So it's like uh, people jumping out of their cars on the side of the street, running in front, you know, there's dogs chasing your tires, you know, there's uh, people yelling at you. There's, you know, clowns parachuting from the sky. And I made that part up, but like, it felt that way. Like all of this stuff was happening as you're driving along in the course of like three blocks, you got to face all of these obstacles, wrecks, you got to go around. I mean, it was ridiculous. And you'd walk away from that thing going, man, and if that's what it's like to drive, I'm staying home, right? I'm not ever going anywhere. I want to sit in my room. I don't want to get out on the road. It freaked you out. If there are that many obstacles out there, I just want to hang back and do nothing. Now, the reason I share that is because uh, the group that Paul is writing to may have had a similar feeling as they faced the culture of their day. And as they tried to walk with God in the middle of some really tough situations, it may have seemed like, There's a lot of obstacles to knowing Jesus and pursuing him. They had persecution from outside. The government and their culture were hostile to Christianity. People wanted them to worship the Roman gods and not Jesus. They had false teaching coming in. There were people saying in order to really know Jesus, in order to really pursue God, you have to obey the Mosaic law, the Old Testament law. And so they had false teaching coming. They also, as we looked at last week, they had strife amongst their members. There were fights between 
Christians. And so there's all these obstacles and the Philippians may have been tempted to go, you know what? In the midst of all that, man, I'm just going to kind of lay back, take it easy, play it safe and, and not pursue Jesus with a whole heart. That would have been the easy road to take. And so in the midst of all of that, all the way through the book of Philippians, as we've looked, Paul is exhorting these men and women, stand firm in the Lord, stand firm in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And remember that the meaning of your life is not found in the affirmation you get from this world. It's not found in your prestige. It's not found in your financial or physical comfort. Instead, it is found in identification with Jesus Christ. Jesus died for you, took your sins away, rose again so you could have eternal life. You have believed that. And so now as a result of that, you have a relationship with God. You know that the purpose of your life is to proclaim him and to serve him. And so why would you just lay back and play it safe? When there's a reward coming that's much greater than anything that you would give up in this life. And so in the midst of all this pressure, Paul says to them, stand firm. And as we walk close to the end of this book now, I love this because Paul is going to give them a way to stand firm in Jesus Christ in the midst of all of these tribulations. And it's a surprising one, right? Because if I were to write a letter to people who are faltering in their faith, there's a number of things I would say. Uh, One would be read the scripture. And in places, Paul says that. Know the word of God. Trust it. I'd say pray, and we're going to see, Paul encourages them to pray. I'd say get into a community, Paul encourages that, but there's an antidote to all the pressures they're facing that Paul gives in this passage that kind of jumps out at you as you read the passage. It's a little surprising. You know what it is? Joy. Joy. Isn't that interesting? Paul says, look, you're going through a lot of stuff. I get that. Rejoice in the Lord. Always. Now, I don't know about you, but I hear that. If I'm going through something tough and somebody says, hey, rejoice, I'm going to go, hey, do you understand what's happening in my life? Hakuna Matata to you too, man, but I've got a lot of stuff going on, right? And so you read that at first and you think, what in the world is Paul talking about? But as you dig deeper into the passage, what you get is Paul isn't just saying, hey, put a happy face on it. Turn that frown upside down, right? That's not what he's doing. What he's saying is this, the joy that Paul is urging and encouraging is a joy that goes much deeper than any circumstance because it's a joy in the Lord. And what Paul says is because Jesus has died for you, he has purchased you with his blood when you were destined for hell and he rose again, he defeated sin, he defeated death and now he promises to come back and he will vindicate those who trust in him. And you will have an inheritance beyond what you can imagine. Because of that, you can live in joy. Always. Every day. Every moment. Despite what's going on. Joy is not, biblically, that I'm just going to suck it up and smile and pretend. Joy is I dig deeply into the promises of God. And I recognize what he's done for me and I recognize what he's promised. And I recognize that that joy is much, much greater than anything that I am losing, any trial I'm going through, any difficulty because of walking with Jesus. And I love this because it's a command. Right here at the beginning, verse four, he says, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Twice he gives this imperative. 
you will rejoice. You must rejoice. In the Greek language, this is a particular mood called the imperative. And, and it, it simply means he's commanding them to rejoice. Yesterday, we went out to a, a festival called the Blue Bonnet Festival, a little ways away from here in Chapel Hill, out by Brenham. Great little festival where they've, you know, lots of vendors come and they sell different products, different food products, and kind of, it's kind of a country festival. They've got all kinds of stuff for the kids. They had a petting zoo, uh, they had rides, they had games, they had all kinds of junk food. So we took our kids out there, uh, we spent the morning out there, and it's interesting to see because even in the midst of all of these things uh, that we were providing, right, it's not every day we just let our kids eat whatever they want, it's not every day uh, that we let them go to a petting zoo, we don't have one of those at home. It's not every day uh, that they get to ride these rides. And yet still, uh, there's this temptation to look around and they go, well, I got to do that ride, but you didn't let me do that one, right? That's because each ride costs about $100,000, right? And so uh, we're only going to do a certain number. And yet in the midst of all this, uh, you're getting food, you're getting candy, you're getting games. And yet still, there's this temptation to complain about what you didn't get. And so at one point, we're walking along and one kid starts to complain and Wife pulls the child aside and says, look, we're here to have fun. There are games, there are rides, there's food. We're going to have fun as a family. You will enjoy this, right? And then we keep going, okay? Now that's joy as a command, except Paul does it in this amazing way where he says, look around you. Look at what God has given you. Look at the spirit of God. The spirit that raised Jesus Christ from the dead lives in you. And now you look around at your circumstances and you're struggling financially, and you have relational difficulty, and you're wrestling with lies from our culture, and all of these things are tough. Paul says in the midst of that, you press deeper into the Lord and you rejoice because of what he has given. And as he walks through the passage, then he gives us ways to evidence that joy in our lives. And as he begins to close out this letter, he says, whatever you do, you rejoice. More times than any other New Testament book, this command to rejoice comes into Philippians. Something like six or seven times, over and over and over again. Rejoice in the Lord always, I will say it again, rejoice. So how do you evidence that in your life? What does that look like practically to be joyful people in the midst of a world where, you know, you may not feel real joyful? My guess is as you're heading toward final, some of you are a little bit scared about your grades and that leads to fear about your future. Maybe you're afraid of what your parents will say when they see the grades that you haven't talked to them about yet this semester. Some of you are nervous about your romantic prospects for the future because there are none at this moment, right? You're about to graduate. Some of you are afraid of what it might look like to walk with God once you move away one day to Dallas or Houston or another state or even another country. How am I going to do that? I won't be surrounded by Christian friends and you're worried about uh, the pushback from our culture. Some of you are experiencing trials right now, serious conflict, or maybe even serious illness or someone you know has died, and you're going, how can I be joyful? What does that look like? That's what Paul walks us through. How can we demonstrate the joy of the Lord? What will it look like lived out in our lives? Let me give you just three principles here. First of all, extend grace to others. Look at verse 5. After he says, rejoice in the Lord, in verse 4, he says, let your gentle spirit be known to all men. The Lord is near. 
Let your gentle spirit, your reasonableness, the idea is, uh, this idea of gentle spirit is simply a spirit that doesn't insist on making everything right on your own, a spirit that doesn't insist upon taking revenge. It's a reasonable, gentle spirit. It's the kind of spirit that says, you know what? I can let some stuff go when people upset me, when people say negative things about me, when people take things away from me that are mine and not theirs, uh, a gentle spirit says, you know what, I can let that go. I remember a wise older man I I used to know, uh, he used to say, about 90% of the stuff you get angry about, you're better off just letting it go. Paul says, let it be known to all that you have this gentle spirit because that gentle spirit reflects the gentle spirit of Jesus Christ, who when he was abused and persecuted and ultimately killed. He didn't lash back. He didn't take revenge, but instead he died in our place. And Paul says, when you evidence that, what you show is that my trust is in God who will vindicate. And that's why he says, the Lord is near. That was a phrase that early Christians used all the time because they believed that God was coming back any time. And guess what? If you're a Christian in here this morning, if you believed in Jesus Christ, you ought to believe that as well. Jesus will come back anytime. The Lord is near. He's with us here and his judgment is coming. And so Paul says in light of that, you know what? You don't need to stress out and take revenge and get back, right? Somebody ate your favorite chips yesterday, right? You don't need to pummel them. Justice is coming, right? I don't know if you've ever, I don't know if you've ever been driving down the highway and you're, you're trying to go the speed limit, right? And it's tough. And you see somebody zip past you at 95 miles an hour and cut you off and go around you and you're, ah, right? And it makes you upset. But then you drive on a little further and what happens? You see him on the side of the road, right? Lights, police officer there and you go, justice, right? And you keep going. <laughs> you don't need to take revenge, do you? Justice will be served. Now, it doesn't always happen that way here and now, right? Sometimes they get away. Paul says, look, the Lord is near. He's near because he lives in your heart through the Holy Spirit, and he's near because he's coming back. And so, you know, what we can do is we can pray for those who persecute us, like Jesus says. We can pray that they'll come to know God, and we can trust that whatever happens, God will work it out for his glory and for the good of his people. So Paul says, let your gentle spirit be known to all men. I ran across an article. It actually was posted a bit on Facebook a couple of weeks ago and then looked into it a little more. There's this guy out in West Texas. His name was Patrick Green, is Patrick Green. Patrick Green is a guy who uh, has been an atheist all of his life. And uh, he did not like that in his town out in West Texas, they were going to put a nativity scene out in front of the courthouse. And so he filed a lawsuit to stop them from putting this nativity scene out in front of the courthouse. Uh, but before he could go forward with the lawsuit, uh, Patrick Green came down with some eye problems and he started losing his sight and he had to withdraw it because he couldn't read the papers he needed to. He couldn't get around like he needed to. And so he withdrew this lawsuit, stepped back from it. Now here's where the story gets interesting. There were some Christians in the town at a local church that heard about what happened. When the lawsuit didn't go forward, they started asking questions, realized he was sick. And you know what they did? They got together and they said, uh, how can we help the guy? And so they banded together as a church. They called and they said, what do you need? Can we pay your medical bills? 
Can we take you to the hospital? And he said, what I really need is groceries. If you really want to help. So they got together with the whole community and they raised hundreds of dollars. A little town raised hundreds of dollars, gave it to him to buy his groceries. He was flabbergasted. The people he had hated his whole life, people he had launched crusades against personally, would do that for him. Next article came out about a week ago. It said he had decided to reevaluate his faith. He had grown up in the church and left it as a young man. He said, I think that maybe God is real. Maybe Jesus did rise from the dead. He began to profess the faith again. Okay, that's what it looks like to demonstrate a gentle and reasonable spirit, even in the midst of a culture that is hostile to the gospel. The reality is, guys, that a lot of times uh, we get stressed out, don't we, when people are hostile to Jesus, right? You see a movie that mocks the faith and makes you angry and you want to go boycott it, right? Burn down the theater. You hear a politician who maybe doesn't value what you and I value as believers in Christ, makes you angry. You want to boycott him. And the reality is that these people could have done that same thing to this man. But instead they said, we're going to love him and demonstrate grace. And I'm not saying there's no place for standing up for what is right and what is truthful, for standing up for the gospel. But in this case, for this man, they said, we're going to love him instead of hating him. And it brought him to Christ. And the reason we're able to do that is because we know that we have an inheritance that is far greater than anything on this earth. Another interesting article that I ran across was about a billionaire, this guy named Bernie Ecclestone. He happens to be the CEO of um, Formula One Racing, the British guy. Billionaire. Walked out of his penthouse suite or whatever one day and got mugged. And uh, they mugged him, beat him up, took off with $200,000 worth of cash and jewelry. Now, First read that, and I thought, man, I'd like to have $200,000 to have taken away from me, right? If I had that, I'd be like, all right, you know? Well, here's what happened. Now, this guy uh, lost all of this stuff, including a, a watch, a Hublot watch, which is a real, real expensive watch, I guess. And uh, he laughed the whole thing off. He sent a picture of his beat-up face to Hublot, to their marketing department, and he wrote, see what people will do to get a Hublot, right? And sent it in. They turned it into an advertisement. Now, he can laugh it off. Why? Because he's got billions of dollars. $200,000 is chump change to this guy. That's what Paul is telling us about the joy we can find in Jesus Christ. Okay, so you lose a little prestige here and now. In these people's case, they were losing property. People were taking it away from them. You're experiencing strife and conflict and difficulty because you're wanting to walk with the Lord. Paul says, don't worry about it. You press into Jesus. And rejoice in him, knowing that the inheritance he has promised you is so, so much greater than what you're losing. You say, but I still feel worried. I still feel anxious. So Paul goes on and he says this. You can defeat that anxiety through prayer. Through prayer. Look at verses 6 and 7. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. I love that. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, 
with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. I was reading some commentaries on this passage this week, and I ran across one of them. simply said, here's the way you could put this. If you want to worry about nothing, pray about everything. Everything you're worried about, you bring it to God. Jesus says, look, God knows what you need before you even ask him anyway. So you say, well, why do I ask him? I ask him for a couple of reasons. One, because he wants a relationship with me. Two, because in some way the scripture says he does listen and answer our prayers. But there's another reason, and that is this, that when I come before him and I'm anxious and I'm fearful and I'm worried, but I pray about it, I exhibit this dependence and trust upon God to say, God, whatever I'm worried about is in your hands. You can take care of it, even though I can't. If you're honest, most of the things in your life that you worry about, they're really out of your control, right? You try to fix them in some way. But, but a lot of the things we worry about are out of our control. And that's an opportunity to come before God and say, God, I'm worried. I want to trust you. Over the course of this past semester, uh, my wife and I have been selling our house. We're not leaving town. We're just, we moved into a house when it was just Shannon and me. And now we've got three kids and a dog and it's starting to feel a little smaller. So we're moving. So we have a little bit more room. And, but the process of doing this has been uh, this challenging process because when you sell a house, people come by and they look at it and they go, uh, I don't like this. I don't like this. I don't like this. I'm not buying it. Right. And then they walk out. And especially in a tough economy. And so it's been this stressful time for me personally because uh, I want to do this for my family. And there was one afternoon, I'm sitting in my backyard, the kids are playing, and I'm sitting there and I'm stressed out because uh, we think that someone might buy it, but he's got a problem with the house. He doesn't like it for one reason or another. And I'm sitting there on the kid's swing, right? And I'm just kind of sitting there and I'm thinking about it and they're playing around me and I'm, I'm caught up in all of this worry and what's going to happen to us and financial problems and future, blah, 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 blah. And I'm sitting there and as I'm doing this, here comes uh, my oldest daughter and she walks up to me and I look at her and she has this look on her face like this, right? And she's worried. And I said, something, something going on? And she goes, I can't relax. I can't play. Seven years old, okay? And I'm thinking, what could possibly be going on? You know, she goes, well, I have a project and it's due tomorrow, and mommy's supposed to help me with it, but mommy went to the store, and she hasn't bought the stuff yet, and I'm not going to get it done, and then I'm going to show up tomorrow, and there's going to be no project, and ah, you know, and all this kind of stuff. And, and I looked at her, and I saw my face reflected on hers. And, and I don't know why, this is not always how I respond, but I stopped and I said, you know what? You look like me. And to her, that problem feels every bit as big as my problem. So I said, why don't we stop? We'll pray. So we did. And I didn't, I didn't stop and say, hey, God, I, I just feel fantastic right now. Thank you for letting all this happen, you know? I didn't feel that way, right? Started by saying, Lord, I feel anxious and worried. So does my daughter. We want your peace. And we pray you'll take care of these situations. And we prayed for a minute. Uh, we stopped praying. And... Uh, you know, her situation worked out well. Shannon got home, helped her with the project. Uh, the thing I was worried about actually didn't go like I hoped it would. But there was something that happened when we stopped and prayed about it. That all of a sudden finished and, and there was just this sense that the Lord was saying, I'm here. I'm with you. You don't have to worry. I've got this. That's what Paul says. Be anxious about nothing, but in everything, everything, 
by prayer and petition, present your request before God. With thanksgiving, he says. Gratitude as well is a way that we remember God loves us. He cares for us no matter what's happening. We begin to thank God. Thank you for Jesus Christ. Thank you for the spirit of God. Thank you that I'm standing here alive, that I have clothes on my back. I've got a roof over my head. I'm not starving. Thank you, God, for my family, my friends. Now, God, there's this thing I'm worried about. And all of a sudden, after all that gratitude, it feels a lot smaller, doesn't it? Will you take care of this for me? And I love verse 7. He says, you do that, and look at this. The peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. He doesn't say, and everything will work out fine. He doesn't say, you'll have no more problems. He doesn't say the issue will go away. Instead, he says, the peace of God, which goes beyond all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. This guard, it is a military term. It refers to a detachment of soldiers that stood guard around a city. And I love the imagery. God's peace will stand around your mind like little soldiers and guard you from the worry and the anxiety and the fear that comes from being a part of this broken and sinful world so that you can be joyful in God. Imagine the president's secret service detail. You're not going to walk up and just go shake hands with the president and try to talk to him, are you? Not unless you want a good beating, right? You're not going to drive down Pennsylvania Avenue and look shady and suspicious, right? I actually had a friend who drove down Pennsylvania Avenue in Washington, D.C. one time with an expired registration sticker on his car. He didn't remember it was expired until the Secret Service pulled him out of his car, took him, literally, this is true, took him to a dark room, chained him to a chair, and interrogated him for hours. You don't do it. Why? You don't get near the man. Guards, they are there to guard. It says the peace of God, that's what it'll do. Nothing can touch you. It doesn't mean your circumstances will suddenly get better. It doesn't mean you're immune to the problems of life. What it means is that your heart and your mind and your spirit are guarded from the worry, the fear, the anxiety, the stress, because you know that you've got a God who's watching out for you. You know that you've got an inheritance in Jesus Christ. So you don't need to worry. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, everything. That doesn't just mean in the morning. That doesn't just mean at night as you go to bed. doesn't just mean while you eat your meal. Everything. Every day, present your request to God. And that turns us into the type of joyful people God has called us to be. And then finally, we fill our minds with what is good. Verses eight and nine. Finally, brethren, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute, if there is any excellence and if anything worthy of praise, dwell on these things. The things you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. And what Paul says is this, yes, you spend time in prayer. You allow the grace of God to work through you. But all of this flows from filling your mind with what is good, filling your mind with the things of God. What you fill your mind with will determine your character. What you think about will become what you say and what you do. And the more you think about something, the more that will generate more thoughts of that thing. 
And so never believe that the things you watch, the things you read, the things you listen to have no impact on who you are because they impact your character deeply. Uh, When I was in college on campus here, all of the dorms were divided into men's and women's dorms. I know most of them now are co-ed. They were all pretty much divided up except for a couple of them. And I lived in the commons on Southside. And back then, uh, back then two of the dorms were guys' dorms and two of them were girls' dorms. It was interesting. Uh, You could tell when you walked into that dorm, even if you didn't know which one, what it was filled with, men or women, right? Uh, You would walk into the guys' dorm and it was just like 20 years of body odor and sweat and all kinds of musty stuff. And you would just walk in and it was one of those, whoa, okay, I know who's living here, right? You walk into the girls' dorm and it was 20 years of over-applied perfume, right? It would just hit you like this wall of gardenias and all sorts of roses and all sorts of fragrances, right? And you'd walk in and you go, okay, I know who lives here. Over years, what the dorm was filled with, which gender, caused it to take on a certain character, right? I wouldn't be surprised if you walked in today and there were still remnants of those smells, even though they've been co-ed for years. What you fill yourself with becomes your character. And so Paul says this, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about those things. All of these words, I wish I had time to go through them in detail this morning, but essentially they are all words that say you focus on the things of God. You avoid the lies of your world around you that say that success is found in prestige or in money or in having people like you or in avoiding persecution. Instead, you focus on the truth of God, that God loves you and he's demonstrated that in Jesus Christ, that Jesus has risen again and you have eternal life. You focus on those things that are elevated and honorable and fitting to God. The things that you fill your mind with affect your character. And my guess is that some of you in this room, you fill your mind throughout the week with television shows or things on the internet or things you're listening to or things you're reading that are not consistent with the character of God. Not too long ago, some people recommended a TV show to me and I started watching it and I watched it for about half the season and it was interesting, but man, the thing was just filled with all kinds of illicit sexuality. And, and I, the more, I, you know, I, and people kept saying, well, no, there's more beyond that. Keep trying to, you know, all this kind of stuff. And the more I watched, the more frustrated I got by this thing and the more disturbed I got. And I finally said, I got to turn it off. And some of you say, you know, stuff doesn't affect me like that. Uh, that almost worries me more. Have you ever thought that maybe you've hit a place where your conscience is seared? And so the violence and the greed and the sexuality that fills our culture, it just doesn't bother you anymore. And you've begun to take on a mind that fits with the sinful culture around you. All right? And it's not just sex and violence. It's also greed. Maybe you sit there, ladies, and all day long you're on Pinterest and you're like, I wish I had that house. Right? <laughs> wish I had those shoes. Those shoes look glittery, right? I wish I had that shirt. It's very shiny, right? Look at her hair too right? And you sit there and you're like, I want this stuff I don't have. And so you fill your mind with thoughts of what God's given me isn't good enough. Guys, maybe for you, it is an issue of sexual immorality, things you look at or things you watch and you sit there and you go, you know, I I don't have a wife. I don't have the opportunity to 
practice sexuality, right? So I'm just going to, I'm going to take what God has not given. So you fill your mind with thoughts of discontent and lust. Maybe it is you fill your mind with thoughts of if only I were smarter, if only I were better looking, if only I were a couple feet taller, right? I'd be happy. I'd be joyful. Paul says, no, you fill your mind with what is true. You are who God has intended you to be. And he's given you all that you need. Paul says to Timothy, he's given you all that you need pertaining to life and godliness, all that you need, and so much more. Your Savior died for you and rose again. He's given you the Spirit of God and he's called you to know him and to help others know him. So you fill your mind with those things. You fill your mind with the Word of God. Come closer to him in prayer. And then you extend that grace and joy to others so the world can see the joy of the Lord. I know a few people in my life, and usually they're older people who've walked with God for a long time. There's a guy I'm thinking of even at our church, older man, probably in his uh, 80s. And maybe you've known people like this. You, you get near the guy and you just can feel the joy of the Lord. It's like the man walks in the room and there's just this refreshing sense of peace and joy as he begins to interact with you and talk with you. I remember a lady like that at a church, Shannon and I went to in Dallas, just walks in the room and there's just this exuding joy that doesn't come overnight. It comes from uh, years, from a lifetime of pressing deeper into God's promises and into his word. In that lady's case, she had memorized most of the New Testament and she knew it by heart and she spent her time in prayer and in love and service to others. So when she walked in a room, people said, I want to be with her. You know what? She's 85, 90 years old. And by worldly standards, she's not influential. She's not attractive. She's not prestigious. But I want to be around her because she's lovely and joyful. That's what Paul's encouraging. No matter what's going on in your life, rejoice in the Lord. I want to be like that. I want to be like that. I hope that you do too. Through the power of the Lord given through his spirit. Would you guys pray with me? Father, thank you so much for your word, for all that it has to teach us. And we pray you would make us joyful people, not people who are complaining, discontent, or grumbling. Father, I pray that we would focus on the promises of God and the truth of your word. Lord, protect us from fear, anxiety. Protect us from filling our minds with those things that are disagreeable or sinful. And let us instead fill our minds with the things of Jesus Christ. Come to you in prayer so we can extend and reflect the grace of Jesus Christ to the world around us. Thank you, God. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Y'all have a great week.